What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Uh, We often ask, uh, you know, as you heard in the intro there, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We get all sorts of calls and uh, questions from people who, uh, you know, want to clarify what exactly the Catholic Church is all about uh, before making that big leap, and and it certainly is a big leap. And normally, we do take uh, phone calls, and that's uh, the the uh, you know the main focus of this program. However, today we are doing a mailbag edition of our show, wherein we answer a whole lot of questions from uh, emails and texts that we've received over the last couple of weeks. Our uh, producer Charles Berry. I'm uh, Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. You're ready to... Good afternoon, rather, I should say. As the case may be. You are ready to dip in here? Let's do it. This is an uh, interesting question here from Mel. Uh, Mel says, Dr. Andrews, you always say the Bible doesn't state it is the authority, but in chapter 1, there is a special blessing for reading the book of Revelation. It is the eschatology that has seven letters to the seven churches from Jesus Christ himself, as it's put. Now, if this wasn't correct... How does the Catholic Church treat the words of our Lord's just ignore or allegorize? Does the Catholic Church treat this book as delusional? Please enlighten. Thank you. And it's signed Mel, who reads the word daily and searches the scriptures. Yeah, thanks, Mel. I really appreciate the question. So, unfortunately, I think you've misrepresented what I say on the show. The Catholic Church regards the Bible as authoritative. Yes. It's absolutely authoritative. It's divinely inspired. It's the canonical scriptures, the Word of God. It's authoritative. But what is the nature of its authority? That's the question that I like to ask on the show. So is the Bible intended by God to be the final authority and sufficient rule of faith for the Church so that any question you might have about the faith or morals can be definitively answered by referring to Scripture and Scripture, on the face of it, gets the final word. Is that the nature of its authority? And the answer to that question is no, because Jesus doesn't give it that authority, and and God hasn't revealed that that's the way the Bible is to function. So how does the Bible function in the Christian life, according to the Catholic Church? Well, so take, for example, what you do every day, reading the Scripture, trying to draw, draw closer to God and know more about His will— Perfectly acceptable use of the Bible. Absolutely acceptable use of the Bible. Um, uh, uh, Use it for prayer. Go to the Psalms. Maybe pray the Psalms. Absolutely perfectly acceptable use of the Bible. Um, Studying biblical history to have deeper understanding about the people of God and God's actions in history and over time. Perfectly acceptable. Uh, So as we engage the Bible to draw closer to the Lord, to learn more about him, to lift up our hearts in prayer, either privately or with the church, this is how the Bible is meant to be used. Even uh, for theological reflection, maybe reflect on the letters of St. Paul or the teaching of Christ, and speculate philosophically, theologically about the nature of God or redemption. Perfectly acceptable use of the Bible. All right, Uh, but here's another kind of problem you might encounter. 
Um, John's Gospel, prologue to St. John's Gospel, chapter 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and okay. all things have been made through him, and nothing has been made that has been made apart from him. Well, some kind of affirmation of Christ's divinity there. The Word that became incarnate in Christ. Yeah. Some kind of affirmation of Christ's divinity. Mm-hmm. Well, let's say you get two different people in the room, and one person says, well, that obviously teaches that, God, that Christ is God from God, you know, true God from true God, true light from true light, begotten, not made. And another fellow looks at it and says, no, 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 I, I think it means that Christ is the first created being. Well, those aren't the same position. Right. Well, since they're both appealing to the Bible, the Bible's not going to be able to adjudicate that, dis- that distinction. You're going to have to have some arbiter that can determine which of those is faithful to the, to the deposit of faith given to us by Jesus. Okay. The Bible can't serve that purpose because it's a dispute about the interpretation of the Bible. You see, yes. you have to have some objective living authority authorized by God to adjudicate that kind of dispute. Well, in our case, it happened in the Council of Nicaea, a council of Catholic bishops in 325 mm-hmm. that said mm-hmm. the first one was the correct interpretation, the second one was the incorrect interpretation. The Bible can't do that for you. Right. right? Um, here's another one. Should we put the book of Revelation in the Bible? The Bible can't answer that question. Let's say the book of Revelation itself says, hey, put me in the Bible. Well, that, that, that doesn't mean anything unless we can, we can antecedently determine that the book is authoritative. Mm-hmm. Right? Who makes that determination? What books go in the Bible? The Bible can't decide that for itself. That's decided on the basis of sacred tradition. So Christ, when he gave the Church a rule of faith, what it, where does the buck stop doctrinally? How do you make these kind of determinations? Christ never indicated the Bible as the rule of faith for the Church. He gave us the Church as the rule of faith that even promulgates and determines the contents of the Bible. Okay. We do appreciate that. And here's an anonymous question. Uh, This person says, My husband was baptized in the Lutheran Church, but is now pretty much agnostic. How would I, as a Catholic, go about having his funeral one day, since he cannot have a Catholic Mass, and he doesn't have a Lutheran church or pastor I could call, but he is a baptized Christian, I'd like to be buried with him. Thanks, Anonymous. Yeah, thank you. So uh, this is, of course, it's more than a theological, this is a kind of pastoral question, Mm -hmm. and I I think I would start by asking him what he would like to have done. Oh, and, of course, there, there's no reason that you can't pray for the repose of the soul of anyone. Mm-hmm. You can pray for anybody, have Masses said for anyone, um, and he wouldn't have a Catholic funeral. But uh, I would start by asking him what he would like. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, as we uh, are, you know, progressing in our own walk, uh, come across these end-of-life decisions. And it's really a good idea to work those out as, as soon as you can. Uh, yes, and I tell you what, it's uh, it's closer now than it's ever been. <laughs> That's a very positive way of looking at things. Uh, yeah, my, my wife and I visited a uh, couple of uh, cemeteries over the weekend, and I know exactly what you're talking about. It really brings it all back home. So. You know, I feel like somebody flipped a switch. Well, I know who flipped a switch. Is biology flipped a switch. Yes. All of a sudden, these questions are more salient to me now than they ever were before. Appreciate your question. In a moment, we're going to get to more of these great mailbag questions. Now, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, love to hear from you. Our address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. More to come on this special mailbag edition of Dr. David Andrews' program, Call to Communion. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're not taking your phone calls today because we're doing a special mailbag edition of our program. And uh, as you may have realized, uh, since we've done a number of these mailbag programs over the many years that we've been on the air, uh, on the mailbag edition of the show, we will often read a longer email or two that we just don't have time to unpack during our normal live show. So this is one from one of those uh, longer questions that we received from Tom in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who normally listens to us on Oklahoma Catholic Radio. He says, could you please explain the concept of communion of the saints from the Catholic perspective to lifelong Protestants who were taught that the dead can no longer hear our prayers and whose Bibles do not include the additional seven books the Catholics have? My wife and I are both lifelong Protestants, I am open to Catholicism, and I listen to your show often. My wife comes from a very anti-Catholic background and is pretty closed-minded to anything Catholic. Recently, the subject of praying to Mary came up. My wife said that Mary isn't divine, so it's a sacrilege to pray to her. I told her that Catholic teaching is not to worship Mary in the adoration sense, but rather to pray for her intercession, as well as that of other saints, just as we ask our fellow Christians to pray for us on earth in the spirit of James 5.16, where it says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Sounds like he's got a pretty good handle on it. If you were sitting at a table with us engaged in friendly conversation, knowing her background, how would you address her concerns, Dr. Anders, using reason and Bible references only from the Protestant Bible? Your thoughts and commentary, much appreciated. And again, that's from Tom in Tulsa. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, first of all, the doctrine of the communion of saints holds that the church, which is all of those who've been joined to Christ in baptism, mm-hmm. that the church includes the church on earth, the church suffering in purgatory, yes, and the church triumphant in heaven. We're all still members of the church. Mm-hmm. We're members of Christ's body, part of this great, big, wonderful fellowship. And uh, as as members of a body, and St. Paul talks about this a lot in 1 Corinthians, we share with one another the goods that we have for the benefit of the of the whole, for the common good. And so, you know, in, in, in your Protestant church, for example, you know, one guy's a good speaker, maybe he gets pushed to the front in front of the pulpit, Somebody else can really tickle the ivories. They get to play the piano. Uh, you know, somebody else is great at organizing three- and four-year-olds. Guess where they get to go? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. everybody has their part to play. Sure. And it's all for the sake of the common good. And that's an understandable idea, right? And we, Paul talks about that. Well, it's also true in the, not just in kind of the administration of the church, but in the spiritual domain as well. So uh, you go back to your Protestant church. I'm sure that you've got somebody in your church that you personally have identified as a real prayer warrior. You often hear that language. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, so-and-so is a real prayer warrior. You know, and you've got a need, you have some antagon- some sort of anxiety. We better call up Sally. She's the prayer warrior. You know, she'll get the job done. Yeah. I mean, I when I was Protestant, we used this kind of language all the time, recognizing that some people have gifts, not just in the natural realm, but in the supernatural realm. They just, you know, have a have a relationship with God that... Uh, and a prayer life that you envy, that you'd like to be a part of, and that you know you can be a part of because you can ask them for their help. Um, and uh, and you also have some experience of God himself <clears throat> mediating his grace to you through human beings. So you heard the gospel from someone. And you probably didn't just hear it once. A lot of people, you know, grow up around the church, they hear all this religious language and it doesn't seem to penetrate. Then one day, 
Maybe they went to a Billy Graham crusade. Maybe they went to a revival. Maybe they went to something. And there's just something about that particular delivery, that particular moment, such a time as this, and whammo, uh, grace comes into your life, mediated to you through a human person, mm-hmm. right? St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we have become Christ's co-laborers as if God were making his appeal through us. So whether it's in the life of prayer, whether it's actually in the mediation of God's presence to us through the offer of faith and redemption, maybe through collaborating with one another in the works of charity and mercy and building up the body, the body of Christ, the communion of saints, works together for the sake of the common good. Now, um, do you think that death is stronger than the body of Christ? Does death destroy the fellowship we have with fellow Christians? I mean, that's, that's what you're suggesting, right? Yeah, yeah. But the Catholic Church teaches and Scripture teaches that, that, that we're triumphant in Christ. When we die in Christ and become the blessed dead, we don't stop praying, we don't stop loving, we don't stop caring. So Book of Revelation, chapter 5, shows the saints offering the prayers of the Church to God, offering those prayers to God, interceding for the Church. Um, you think about Moses and Elisha. Well, they're dead. Well, they show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they testify to God's goodness, and they're pre- present there, visible to the disciples for their benefit. It's not for Jesus' sake. It's for the sake of the disciples, mm-hmm. you know, to witness to the divinity of Christ and to his messianic office, right? They, they're, they're collaborating in the work of the Church. They're praying. Uh, sometimes they're showing up, right? All still uh, ordered towards the good of the Church and the glory of God. So that's the idea of the communion of saints. Paul even says that by his sufferings, he can make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. That's Colossians chapter 1. So that's the idea of the communion of saints. And when we ask them to pray for us, we're not doing anything different than we would uh, when we ask our friends on earth to pray for us. So you're correct that this is not the adoration that's due to God alone, right? This is just uh, a friendly request to our brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for us. And you can see very clearly within the Catholic Church that it's not the kind of worship given to God alone because it doesn't consist in sacrifice. The worship that is owed to God alone is that of sacrifice. And we don't offer sacrifice to the saints. And uh, any more than, you know, Sally the prayer warrior. You know, hey, let me let me slaughter a garlanded bull, a garlanded bull for you, <laughs> Sally. You know, no, we don't do that. No. Okay? Uh, but we do offer sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of our lives, our bodies, and, of course, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And in the form of Catholic worship, it's very evident that the saints are participants with us, co-offerers of the Mass to God. They're not the recipients of the sacrifice. Now, uh, I do want to stop a little bit on the statement that Mary is not divine. And I know the sense in which you use that word, and you are correct. Mary is not God, not God Almighty. But every tr- Christian, every Christian is in a sense divine, in a sense, in a participated, per- blah, 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 participated way. Um, you know, you remember Jesus said, uh, Jesus replied, this is John chapter 10, Is it not written in your law, I have said ye are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken— then why do you object when I call myself the Son of God? Mm-hmm. So Christ himself says, those to whom the word of God comes are, can rightly be called small g gods. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says that through the promises of Christ, we become participants, partakers, 
fellowship in the divine nature. And so we are not God with a capital G full stop, but if you live the life of grace, you have a participated uh, kind of divinity. You participate in the divine nature. You become God-like. You are transformed into his likeness and image in a, in, a, in a remote and a participated way. So there is something divine, small d, about the life of all of the saints and all of the faithful. Okay. Well, Tom, we hope that's uh, helpful for you and for your wife as well. Thanks so much uh, for your letter. It's a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Interesting question here from Claire in Lincoln, Nebraska. Good afternoon, Dr. Anders. I recently attended a funeral at an evangelical church. About halfway through the service, the pastor went into an anti-Catholic rant. Yeah, they do that. He, he was so worked up, I thought he was going to throw something. Thankfully, he did not. So why would a Protestant minister have, so, minister have so much anger toward the Catholic Church? Is this common? I have never heard or seen any of the Catholic priests in my 17 years of being a Catholic show the anger that this Protestant minister showed. I was very surprised to witness this. And now this minister has been in my daily prayers with the hope that there will be more compassion with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks for your time, and God bless Claire. I have witnessed this. Unfortunately, I have witnessed this. I have witnessed pastors at funerals uh, who have even been asked uh, to please not do this, to to go on a polemical proselytizing rant um, at uh, at a funeral and offend everybody around them. Yeah. I've seen this happen with my very own eyes. And I will tell you why I think this happens. Uh, because within a certain form of evangelical Protestantism, mm-hmm. and I'm not trying to throw everybody under the bus here, but yeah. I am talking about my experience growing up in the tradition and some people that I've known. Okay. The, the most important thing to some people is to make sure that you get your cosmology right. You know, cosmology is kind of a theory of the way the universe is ordered top mm. to bottom. Uh-huh. Um, to make sure you get the, the, you know, the pieces of the architecture of the universe correct in your thinking. And, uh, and, and, you know, part of that is that you're saved by faith alone and that you have to believe certain things about what Christ did and that if you, you know, have these right beliefs, uh, you get them cognitively ordered in your brain the right way and assent to them. Uh, that you get, you know, when you die, you get zipped out of this life and pulled up into the heavens. And that's really the most important thing for some people. Ma- make sure that other people think the right way. And I used to be in this camp. I used to think like this. And I thought that it was a great work of charity on my part if I could tell other people they were wrong and get them to think like me. I was a, <laughs> I was a blast at dinner parties, you can just imagine. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it, it did not occur to me. It took me years to figure out how profoundly dehumanizing that is to people. Um, and to, th- you know, it's kind of like treating somebody like a mark, like a carnival barker, you know, sees a mark and tries to yeah. exploit them, you know. Like, I'm going to reel you in and manipulate you, and all I care about is can I get you to sign on the dotted line of my doctrinal statement? Another but, notch in the belt. Another notch in the belt. Yeah. But, but when you're in a tradition that teaches you that, like, that's the thing. Like, this soul just died. To, whether or not they go to heaven depends on whether or not they've you know, they've signed the dotted line at the bottom of the church's doctrinal statement. Hmm. Um, if that's the most important thing in the world, then, then and, I, and I've, I know this from experience, that some of these pastors view the funeral as a time of particular vulnerability, and they're correct about that. 
And they think, okay, well, I've got an audience of broken people out here weeping, wondering about this man's eternal salvation, wondering if he's in heaven. Now is the time to strike. The iron is, is hot. I can, I can really dig it in. Now is the time to put this in front of them front and center. Make sure they don't have the wrong ideas, because that's what I think is important is ideas. Make sure they don't have the wrong ideas and really twist the knife so they'll, they'll sign on the dotted line. Mm. Now, that's very mercenary. It's very mercenary. It's very hurtful. But if, if you don't think that virtue and charity is the path to heaven, and for many of these guys, that's not the path to heaven. You know, Luther once wrote, God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. If you think charity and virtue is not the path to heaven, but getting the ideas right is... Well, then, at their most vulnerable, then that's a great opportunity for you to dig in that knife and get their ideas right, and uh, even if you've been asked not to. So that's certainly not everybody, but I know from personal experience that there are some folks that have that attitude, and they, they want to make darn sure that you don't think the Catholics are right, because that would cost you your soul. Better not be Catholic. That's what they think. Now, that's one of the things—this attitude is one of the things that made me Catholic— because I grew up like this. I lived with this kind of a community. And eventually I realized, you know, my religion is making me bad. It's kind of toxic, isn't it's, it? It's making me a bad person. Yeah. It's making me mean and rigid and hurtful and uncharitable and not caring about the person in front of me. And I just look at them as a kind of a, you know, kind of a mark. Uh, you know, I'm like an Amway salesman you know, <laughs> for, for supernatural goods. Uh-huh. And there's got to be something really wrong with a religion that makes you a worse person. And then I turned and I looked at the Catholic tradition, and the Catholic Church said, well, actually, it's all about charity and virtue. Mm. And we know that's tough. So Christ, Christ gave us grace in the sacraments and wisdom of a tradition to help you transition from, you know, that kind of rigid, angry aggressive, narcissistic, selfish, self-aggrandizing, ideologically divided, possessive, domineering attitude towards somebody like St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah. And I said, that's, I'm not St. Francis, but that's, that's the path I want to tread. So that's part of what made me Catholic. Claire, thanks so much for your letter. Here's one from Larry. I listened to your last question yesterday and the discussion of Martin Luther. My question is, how did Martin Luther handle the fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God? Seems to me that we would have some uh, rudimentary understanding of God that goes along with the analogous understanding of God, and that Martin Luther must have misinterpreted or completely abandoned the idea of being made in the image and likeness of God. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, thanks. So uh, Luther definitely believed that people were made in the likeness and image of God. Um, I don't have in my mind—he wrote a couple commentaries on Genesis, and I'd love to go back and read them. I just can't tell you what he says specifically on that doctrine right now. But in terms of the idea of did Luther think there was some sort of spark or connection between our nature and God that would sort of naturally orient us towards heaven, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Luther thought that human reason and human nature were utterly vitiated and corrupt and that there was no analogy— and, uh, and in fact, later theologians influenced by Luther, like Karl Barth, for example, took the idea of an analogy between God and creatures. They thought that was the invention of the Antichrist. They thought that was the worst thing on the planet. Now, mm. by contrast, among Catholics, the Catholic theologian Eric Pechevara, folk Polish theologian, thought that the analogy of being was the single most important Catholic philosophical doctrine. 
Like that there is an analogy between God and creatures. Not not identity, yeah. but analogy. That there's a point of contact. There's something about the natural world that evokes and orients us towards God. We still need grace, but the analogy of being is the heart of the Catholic intellectual tradition. Great question, Larry. Thank you so much for it. In a moment, we'll continue with more on this special mailbag edition of the program. It's called A Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Hey, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Let's talk about it here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Today, we're not taking your phone calls, so uh, just, you know, sit back and enjoy the program. We're uh, doing uh, the mailbag edition of our program, answering a whole bunch of uh, emails that we've received over the last couple of weeks here at uh, Call to Communion. Here's an interesting question now from Susan David, who says, Hello, Dr. Anders and Tom. What would you say to someone who wants to understand how they can move from knowing about Jesus as a historical person to knowing him personally. In other words, how can a person move from their subjective emotions, imagination, desire to be cherished and deeply known, etc., to a real encounter with the person Jesus? If a person knows Jesus and is his friend, does this mean Jesus will never let him or her down? Additionally, if meeting Jesus is simply a matter of reaching out from one's own self to the unmoved mover or pure act, is it then true that everyone, no matter their religion, has a relationship with Jesus? I'm finding it hard to know how to relate personally to an abstraction and believe that you can help, Dr. Anders. God bless you, Susan. Oh, thank you. This is a fantastic question. It really I, I is. Couldn't, I couldn't get a better one. Thank you so much. So um, here, here, let me first of all tell you what I think you should not do. Um, and it's a very common point of view, but I think it's wrong. I don't think it's grounded in Scripture or tradition. There are some people out there who will represent to you that Jesus uh, wants to talk to you, you know, in an almost quasi-audible way, like the way you would talk to a friend over a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that, you know, thoughts or feelings or emotions or words that pop into your head are somehow to be understood as coming directly from, from Jesus. Uh, you know, when I was a child, I grew up in a church that emphasized having Jesus come into your heart, and I had this image as a little kid that Jesus was this tiny little homunculus in my left aorta who would, you know, whisper sweet nothings in my ear. <laughs> and that's—I think that point of view is actually fairly common, and I don't really think that's the way it's conveyed to us in the Bible. So I would just point that out by way of um, kind of by way of caution. Uh, so I think there are basically three primary ways that we have a personal relationship with Christ. The first and most important one is that we obey his teaching. That is, in fact, what he said we should do. In Matthew chapter 28, he tells the disciples, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So the first and most important thing for having a relationship with Christ is to purpose to obey his teaching. Secondly, we seek to imitate his example— So, you know, Christ lived an exemplary life. And St. Peter says that, you know, he died, for example, the death of martyrdom to inspire us with courage to do likewise. We are to take up our cross and follow him and imitate his moral example. Um, The third one is a bit more sublime, a bit more profound. And it is this, that Christ came into the world to to perfect the human race. He, He was the second Adam. So where Adam came into the world and sinned, Christ came and lived victoriously 
to the very end and reconstitutes all those who are reborn in him. We're born the first time to the first Adam, naturally. We're reborn to Christ in baptism, and we take on his nature, becomes ours. We become participants in the divine nature. And even as Christ recapitulated our life, our human life, and lived it perfectly, we recapitulate his divine personality by identifying with him in his death and resurrection and all the activities of his divine life, his prayer life, his intimacy with the Father, uh, his fellowship with, uh, with the outcast and with the sinners and the destitute, um, you know, his words, his works of mercy and kindness, his teaching. And we, see, we seek to make these our own, in, according to our state of life and our own particular personalities, that we uh, seek to manifest Christ's divine personality towards others. Pope Benedict uh, wrote in the encyclical Lumen Fide, published by Pope Francis, that we come to see the world through Christ's eyes. Uh, we strive to become another Christ. And St. Paul speaks about the, you know, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This, this divine principle that we receive through grace, reworking us into his likeness and image. So this isn't the kind of knowledge, say, for example, you know, I know Tom as an object outside of myself. I can look at Tom, I can see him, I can describe him, I can tell you about his personality. We can have historical knowledge of Jesus like this. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know, I don't like have a little Tom Price inside of me that's like thinking and acting through me. That's a participated knowledge. It's not, it's not a discursive, cognitive, content-laden knowledge. It's knowledge by way of participation, by becoming Jesus. So these are the three primary ways we, I think, relate personally to Jesus. Obeying his teaching, following his example, and then recapitulating his divine personality, identifying him with him in his death and resurrection, his martyrdom, his charity towards others, and strive to come to see the world through Christ's eyes. Now, in none of these instances... Does Christ appear in my imagination or before my eyes as a concrete object? You know, the way like Tom is right now when I'm staring at Tom across the studio where I would have a friend, you know, over a cup of coffee. I don't have Christ visible to me as a concrete object like that. These ways are far more uh, interior and a bit more oblique or indirect. But there is a way that Christ gives himself to us in a concrete particular way, and that is in the Holy Eucharist. And that's why the Eucharist is unique among the sacraments. All of them convey Christ to us in this participated manner. You see, in baptism, I can participate in his death and resurrection. In sacrament of reconciliation, I can participate in his act of forgiveness. I can receive that. But in the Eucharist, I get the body and blood of Christ himself. I get the actual body and blood of Christ as a concrete particular. Yeah. Now, I don't, it doesn't appear to me to be Christ. It looks like bread and wine, smells like bread and wine, tastes like bread and wine doesn't look like Christ, but by faith, I know, because the Son of God is trustworthy, it is Christ. Now, again, I admit, this is different from my friend in the cup of coffee, because Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament is not audibly speaking to me. But I would just encourage you to hold, to remember that you can be physically present to someone in a meaningful way without audible communication. You know, when my dad was dying... I sat at his bedside, put my hat on his chest, hugged on him, loved on him. He couldn't speak. I didn't speak to him. I didn't have any words to say. I'd said them all. It didn't make his physical presence to me any less meaningful. I mean, I didn't pack it up and go home because yeah. he couldn't talk, you know. Right. Physical presence is meaningful even in the absence of, of audible communication. 
So we have Christ's word in the Gospels, we have his teaching, we have his example, we have his participated reality in the sacraments, and we also have his real presence, true body and blood in the Eucharist. Uh, there's another way we have access to Christ, and that is in the persons of his saints. So in, uh, in the Holy Ones, in our own lives, we see Christ more or less reflected. In the saints in glory, we see him very powerfully reflected. Okay? Uh, in sacred art, we are, we are called to remember him and to lift up our hearts to Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. So the Catholic Church is just saturated with points of contact where you come into relationship with Jesus. Now, it is different. Now we see as through a glass darkly. You know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Mm -hmm. That's what's invisible. So it's, we are at a certain remove from Christ that creates a kind of painful longing in our hearts and a desire for heaven. And that's a motivator. Uh, and I think an attempt to artificially reduce that, that distance, that tension, and, uh, and, and reduce Jesus down to a little homunculus, right, in the imagination, is to really diminish him. Approach Christ in the, in the modes that he gives us, his teaching, his example, the sacramental life of the Church, the persons of his saints and our fellow Christians, in the life of the poor, uh, to whom we do mercy, um, and, uh, and, 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 and in the Blessed Sacrament. And so you will have a profound relationship with Jesus that remains mysterious and still evokes that longing for fulfillment and culmination in the life of heaven. God bless you, Susan. We do appreciate hearing from you uh, via email on this special mailbag edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. We have an anonymous email now, David, uh, who says, Hello, Tom and Dr. Anders. I have converted to Catholicism, baptized two weeks ago, confirmed last weekend. But before my conversion, I did not believe in marriage. I did not know it was necessary. That's the way I was brought up. My parents just lived together for decades, only married after I became an adult. I thought marriages were irrelevant, that loving the other person was enough. And now me and my wife-to-be, who is baptized but not a practicing Catholic, we even have two children together. I want to get married as soon as possible, but the circumstances of my life are delaying this process significantly. So my question is, until I get married, can I receive communion or is this a matter of grave sin? Should I confess our intimacy as if it were fornication? Is it a sin to have intimacy with her, even though we already have children together? Could you please said, shed some light on how the church would view my situation and how I should conduct myself from here on out? Thanks, Anonymous. Okay, I appreciate the question. The question is a little bit more nuanced and complicated than you might think, um, because... First of all, the Church believes that there can be a valid natural marriage between unbaptized people without there being a kind of formal ceremony in a church. And there's a kind of a simulacrum of this in civil law, uh, when civil law allows for things you know about them called common law marriages, mm -hmm. which is a, you know kind of a recognition that maybe these two people didn't show up in front of the judge, but they, they've made a lifelong kind of vow of fidelity and to one another that's kind of de facto more than de jure. And so civil law makes some provisions for that. Um, if, uh, uh, you know, if, if at any point you guys made a vow of lifelong fidelity to one another, 
Um, that's something that I would really subject to the pastoral determination of the church to find out whether there maybe possibly there were the ingredients necessary for a valid natural marriage. Maybe not. Sounds like not. But I mean, it's just a, it's a question I would want to explore. Yeah. Um, and uh, and you know, this is dicey because fornication is immoral. It's always immoral. Um, but what makes a marriage is precisely the determination to stay together for the sake of raising a children. And historically and culturally, that can be expressed in a lot of different ways. Most civilizations have formal ceremonies, and in, in you know, the modern Western world, we have uh, you know, civil law that governs that as well. Uh, but something approaching that you know, could be found in a lot of natural circumstances, and I think it would take a lot of pastoral discernment on the, on the part of the Church to determine what was really intended here, what was the reality. And so I'm hesitant, from my degree of remove, to say, you know, that I fully understand the nature of the relationship and what it all entailed. Um, now, but if you were totally unwilling to make such a commitment, and you had it in your mind, I'm not committed to this woman forever, and we're not having a family together, well, then that would definitely be fornication. That, that would be very, very clear. Now, um, you know, if you... Uh, uh, now that you have become Catholic... I'm kind of surprised that this—he did say he had become Catholic already, yes, right? Yes, yes. I'm kind of surprised that this situation was not discussed with the priest prior to your baptism. That seems very irregular to me, because the normal procedure would be that if you go to the church and say you want to become Catholic, the priest is going to begin to ask you about your state of life. Yeah. And, you know, are you married? Are you living with somebody? What's the situation? And uh, and and they would definitely want to regularize your relationship before they admitted you to baptism. Mm -hmm. So there's 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 that's why I'm like so confused here. There's some kind of pastoral oversight there, and uh, and so my my counsel is you need to go straight away to the priest and make all this known. Yeah, you need to lay it all out. Uh, but the short answer, the simple answer is fornication's always wrong. Period. End of paragraph. Yep. Okay. And to have a valid marriage, you have to make a vow of lifelong fidelity for the sake of raising, a children, of raising children. Now, once you become Catholic, that vow also has to be made in the presence of a priest, right? So, I mean, those are kind of the ingredients of what counts as a valid marriage. Okay. But discerning the ins and outs of this in particular circumstances is really subject to the Church's pastoral discernment. So you need to take this to your pastor. Very good. Thank you so much uh, for your email. It's called A Communion with Dr. David Anders. You know, November is the month of all souls, and we pray for the souls of all the faithful departed in purgatory. Many of the saints speak of our prayers for the dead as being something they really need and then that they can benefit from. Tradition says, though the dead in purgatory can pray for us, they cannot pray for themselves, and they very much need our prayers. Throughout this month of November and throughout our lives, we owe the deceased our prayers. Please join in this devotion to all souls with books for children and adults, crucifixes, prayer cards, DVDs. They're all available right now at EWTNRC.com. EWTNRC.com. Here's an interesting question now from Karen, who says, I am a big fan of Call to Communion. Please discuss your opinion of Paul Johnson's A History of Christianity. For whom is it written? A Catholic friend who does not attend Mass thinks of this as being very important. Thank you, Karen. Yes, thank you so much. appreciate the question. So I'm familiar with Mr. Johnson. He is, of course, a great popularizer and a writer of histories. He has written them on many, many topics. 
Um, uh, I think Mr. Johnson is a Christian. I don't think he is a Catholic. Okay. I have to confess, I have not read his history of Christianity. I have read so many histories of Christianity that when I have found Paul Johnson's, I was like, another one. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I need to read this one. <laughs> um, you know, every, every like, sort of broad historical narrative is always selective, and every author has a bias. Uh, so, and without exception, I remember when I was in ninth grade, went to high school, uh, had a great European history professor, fantastic history teacher, and the first paper he assigned my ninth grade class was, he says, go pick any history book you want in the library and write a paper on the bias of the author. Oh, wow. And uh, you know, all these old ninth graders are like, well, what if he doesn't have a bias? <laughs> Dr. Cooper said, don't worry. Yeah. He's got one. Grow or up. she's got one. You know, <laughs> go find it That's and right. write on it. It's a great exercise. It is. So, uh, you know, Paul Johnson's got an axe to grind. And, uh, and, and so no, you know, no narrative history like this is the whole truth. And it has to be selective by necessity. And, you know, I like, you know, sort of big narrative histories to kind of get your— you know, get your feet wet and kind of get the lay of the land. But then for me, the exploration of history is diving into the details, finding those points in the story that are salient or interesting or where there's still questions, and start digging into the primary sources and seeing what the author left out. You know, when I was writing my doctoral dissertation and I was trying to figure out, okay, how to do original historical research? Like, that's a challenging question. Yeah. You know, how do you come up with something that's genuinely original and makes a contribution in a field where, you know, it's just been endlessly picked over? Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that the easiest way to do that is find the consensus and then find an exception. So whatever your field of study is, there'll be a consensus among scholars that this is how the thing shakes out. Well, you go, you go looking for an exception to that rule, and you'll find one. You'll find one, yeah. and that may be a wedge that you can drive, you know, to an entirely different narrative, a whole different paradigm. And so, you know, Johnson's got a narrative. He's he's got some sort of hermeneutic. Uh, it's not the it's not the be all and end all. And uh, is it bad? No, I wouldn't say it's bad. It's fine. Go read Johnson's book, but that wouldn't be the only one I would read. I, you know, I really like Tom Wood's book, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. Oh, fantastic book. You know. Okay, Karen, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Robert, who says. I have trouble wrapping my mind around a God who is God, big letters, G-O-D, pre-existence, and God who remains God after existence when so much changed. Could you not believe that Jesus was begotten within time by God because time was created, not Jesus? We know that God was a creator. Wouldn't it make him limited to only create within his boundaries? So if he were to create outside his boundaries— he would have to have transformed himself to become God of the creation, right? How do I get on board with the church's teaching on something I wrestle with in my mind? I have tried to blindly accept it, but it just keeps coming to my mind whenever I think about the Trinity. Do I have to go to confession over this? Any guidance would be much appreciated. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, okay, I appreciate the question. I think we need to kind of straighten out our categories a little bit. So first of all, God doesn't create existence. That's that's a that's an error. Okay, um, God is the very act of existing, and uh, God's eternal, and so being is eternal. Existence itself has no beginning of existence because God is the very act of existing. Ipsum esse subsistence, existent being, subsistent being is the Thomistic definition. What God creates is not existence; He creates participated beings. 
beings that have their existence by way of participation, right? They don't have their essence. They don't, excuse me. They don't have their es- their existence of themselves. Existence is something that is conferred on them by God. Okay, and so we can think about reality uh, hierarchically ordered between self-existent being, namely God. And, and contingent being that has its being by participation. And contingent being, because it's contingent, is not necessary. And uh, God could have made this world or another world or no world. And he could make, even though Thomas thinks that he's only made one world, God could make more than one world if he wanted to. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so with respect to the doctrine of Christ... Um, you're, you asked whether you could think of Christ as a creature who, who assumed existence, uh, upon whom co- existence was conferred at some point in the you know, primordial past. No, that's not the Catholic doctrine. That's actually the, the heresy of Arianism. Um, do you have to go to confession for speculating about the logical coherence of Arianism? No, you do not. <laughs> you do not. You don't have to go to confession for playing around with theological language and speculating and trying to understand the logic of God. Far from going to confession, I commend you for this kind of activity. It's called theology, attempting to give rational coherence to a mystery. It's a great thing to do. And, and look, you know, prior to the Council of Nicaea in 325, all Catholics confessed that Jesus was God, but there were debates about what that meant. And, you know, Arius is not the first person in history who had um, a kind of subordinationist Christology, who, who, who thought that Christ's being was somehow lesser than God's. And theologians tried to wrestle with God's unicity and the plurality of the persons of the divine trinity, and they made a lot of mistakes, and there were some heresies that got articulated along the way, but they were, they were good-faith efforts very often to, to make sense of a mystery. And finally, you know, the Church had to kind of weigh in on the topic and say, no, this is the right way to articulate this, and, and now we have, you know, certainty about the nature of uh, about the Divine Trinity. But, uh, you're, you know, you're in good company of trying to figure things out. That's not—you don't have to go to confession for that. The only thing you'd have to go to confession for would be if you understood the Orthodox doctrine, you really knew what the Church taught, mm-hmm. and you said, I refuse to accept it. I categorically refuse to accept it, and I obstinately reject it, I will teach something else. Now, that's the canonical crime of heresy. Okay. But you're not doing that. You're not even—you're not within a, a mile of doing that. Robert, appreciate uh, your question. Here's one now from Marty in Paducah, Kentucky. I have always understood that the canonization of both the Old and New Testament happened at the Council of Carthage in 397 A.D. A friend questioned me on this matter, and she said, No, the books were canonized at the Council of Rome— which I had not heard of. I have researched both of these councils and have found conflicting information. What say you? Thanks. Love your show. Marty in Paducah. Yeah, so the question of the Church's canon was addressed at all of these councils, Carthage, Hippo, Rome, and then finally Trunt. Ah. Um, and so, you know, this is not unusual in the history of the Church when, when there's a doctrinal issue that needs to be decided. Um, it may be treated and articulated in a number of different fora, you know, forum until it's finally, uh, you know, definitively, uh, I was about to make a redundancy and say definitively defined, (laughs) but until it's finally defined in a, a, you know, sort of uh, final way. 
Okay, very good. And here's one from uh, David in Marysville, uh, Michigan, listening on iHeartRadio. David says, My granddaughter questions why infants are baptized. They don't know what's taking place. Second, how can we support water sprinkled or poured in baptism rather than immersion? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So babies are baptized because they need grace and they need to be made members of the church. Yeah. So, I mean, I want my child to be a member of the church and have all the rights and privileges, all the graces that are afforded to a church member as members of Christ's body, and I want them to have original sin washed away and be made partakers of Christ, and all that's conferred upon us by baptism. As a parent, why would you not want the best for your child? Yeah, you're going to inoculate your kids against polio. Why not inoculate them against original sin while you're at it? There you go. You don't ask the kids permission before you do the one. (laughs) Why do you ask them for the other? That's right. You know? Um, and then how can we justify sprinkling or pouring versus mm-hmm. immersion? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because that's what Christ has revealed. Jesus revealed that that's okay. He revealed it through sacred tradition. And the scriptures are actually ambiguous on this question. But the Bible never shows us in a picture the mode of baptism. It tells us that, you know, people went down into the Jordan River, mm-hmm. or the Ethiopian eunuch is traveling around the road, and he comes on a mud puddle, Right, and yeah. uh, we don't we don't actually. There's no description in Scripture of the mode of baptism. Now, sometimes Baptists will quibble and say, "Well, baptism means immerse." No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean immerse. It means baptize. The etymology of the word may refer to immersion, but etymology is not definition. That's just etymology. The word means baptize. It refers to a liturgical rite, and the Scriptures themselves are silent on the mode. But tradition has revealed to us the proper modes and acceptable modes of baptism, of which sprinkling, immersion, and pouring are all acceptable. All right. Well, there you go. Okay, David, thanks for listening to us in Paducah. And uh, wow, what a fast-moving hour this was. We answered all kinds of emails from all kinds of people in uh, all kinds of locations on all kinds of different topics. But the main thing is, let's get those questions answered before we uh, move ahead in our own faith walk. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. Don't forget, we do the program Monday through Friday on EWTN. Normally, it is a live show for you at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. Every so often, probably about once a month, we uh, bring you one of these uh, mailbag programs that we can uh, answer some of those questions that are a little bit longer, that take a little more time to unpack. Don't forget, you can check out the podcast any time of the day or night by going to EWTNradio.net EWTNradio.net. On behalf of uh, Charles Beery, our producer, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless. God bless.